Would you please pray with me and also for me? Lord, I thank you for your scriptures. I also thank you for the change of the seasons and for this year, this Advent. Lord, I pray that you would stir up in each one of us a desire for a closer relationship with you. I pray that we would, with joy, lift our heads looking for you to return. Father, help me now as I preach. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you or someone that you know loves surprises but hates being surprised, you know how frustrating that can be because you're trying to plan, let's say, a surprise birthday for a big birthday. Maybe it's like a a mark of the decade or something, a big 40th birthday party. And if it's a person who loves surprises but loves figuring out that a surprise is coming, it's like impossible to catch them. It's impossible to surprise them. And it's frustrating if you're the one trying to surprise them, but it's very assuring for them. They feel very pleased with themselves that they figured this out before it happened. Now, this teaches us an important spiritual lesson that is helpful for Advent. When you're always ready, you're never surprised. Advent is about readiness. You know that we have a Boy Scout troop here at our church, and part of the Scout motto is to always be prepared. And how do you do that? Well, you anticipate what is coming, and then you plan now for what is going to happen then. That's how you're ready. And if you're always ready, then you're never surprised. If you know what's coming, you can be ready for it. So the question this morning that I'd like you to think about is, is the thought of Christ's return a joy? Thinking about Christ returning, coming in great glory and power to judge the living and the dead, is that a joy to you, or does it cause apprehension? It should be a joy. And if it's not, let that be a caution to think about why you're not joyful about it. Now, Mark chapter 13 is the reading that's prescribed for the first Sunday this year in Advent. And I'd like to turn to Mark chapter 13 and walk through this. Uh, Deacon Luke just read a portion of it, but you really have to look at the whole chapter to get a sense of the context and what precipitated those words of Jesus about his second coming. They were actually in the temple worshiping. And they were marveling at the temple. I can appreciate this because a couple of years ago, you, the church, sent my family to the Holy Land to go and tour. And we went up and saw Galilee, and then we went down to Judah, and we went into the Holy City, and we got to see just the Temple Mount. The foundation wall, the western wall, is still there. The Temple Mount was not destroyed, but everything on top of it was. And just looking, you know, with my engineering mind, just looking at how large the stones were that made the foundation wall, I couldn't believe it. It was, I imagine, like seeing the pyramids or something. How could people 2,000 years ago have built something so huge, so heavy? And that was just the foundation wall. The temple was, I'm sure, even more glorious than that, with large stones and all the gold and trimmings and everything that it had. So they come out of the temple, and one of them says, Lord, Look at how impressive these stones are. This temple is glorious. And then Jesus shocks them and says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Literally to this day, you can go see the stones that were thrown 200 feet off of the foundation wall and hit the lower deck and shattered the pavement. They're huge and they're just laying there 2,000 years later as a reminder that the words that Jesus said actually happened. Physically, you can go see it. 
So they were just blown away by this. And it was really, the temple was a wonder of the ancient world. It took over 46 years to build this temple that Herod built, and it was the center of their, their religious life. And then Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon it. So, I mean, the natural question is, well, when, Lord? So two sets of brothers, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, pull him aside and say, Lord, when is this going to happen? And what are some of the signs we should look for that the, all this stuff that you're describing is going to happen? Well, what happens here then is a teaching which scholars call the little apocalypse. Jesus uses apocalyptic imagery and language, just like the book of Revelation has, to describe things that are to come in the immediate future. Some of it is in, literally in the next week that the glory of Jesus on the cross would be revealed. Some of it is in the year AD 70 when the temple falls and is, is destroyed by Rome. And then some of it is yet to come. And we get all hung up on this because we don't know which part is which in this chapter. And so it requires a little wisdom. So one of the things he says is that there will be many false Christs and false messiahs. People will come and will claim to be the savior. Pay no attention to them. Don't worry about that. Don't be alarmed, he says. And then he says, but you, you will experience persecution. And they will bring you before leaders and rulers, and you will be persecuted for my namesake. But don't worry, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say in those moments, and you'll give witness, and the gospel will be preached to the ends of the globe. Now, both of those things are still happening today, that the church is being persecuted in parts of the world. People are being brought before leaders. They're giving testimony to the glory of God. Many are dying for their faith. The martyrs, all that stuff, it's still happening. And there are would-be saviors popping up all over the world all the time. Follow me, follow me, I'm the one. Jesus said, don't be alarmed. Don't worry about that stuff. And then he says something that's kind of shocking. In here, it's called the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then in parentheses it says, let the reader understand. He's describing something that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, which we actually looked at earlier in the year, that there is going to be a desecration of the temple, the holy place where they would meet with God was going to be desecrated. And it actually happened when Rome came into the temple. The leader, the Roman leader Titus came in and set fire to things and destroyed it all. But before that, there were awful things done in there. They sacrificed on the altar animals that were considered unclean. They set up temple prostitution. They put up an image of another god in God's temple and made the Jews in there worship that. This was the abomination of desolation. And Jesus warned them that this was going to happen. And he said, and when this stuff starts to happen, don't go into the city. Don't go into your house. Run to the hills. Flee. Because it's going to be horrible. And what actually happened, if you read the history books, is that the Romans surrounded the city and laid siege to it, and a number of people, thousands, tens of thousands of people died, either of starvation or the sword, and it was a bad, bad situation. It was a desecration of their worship, and it was horrible. And all this happened in AD 70. But he goes on further, and he starts to describe what will happen when he returns, that this has not happened yet, the second coming of Christ. Now, I want to point out, in this chapter, seven times we're commended to, to be alert. Specifically, three times he says, be on guard, keep watch. And then four times he says, stay awake. And people take this little apocalypse and they try and make it into a secret code to figure out when is Christ coming. 
if this happens in the politics, if this happens in the environment, if this happens in the economy, if this happens, okay, it's all lined up. I know that Jesus is coming. I can be sure next week or next month or next year. Don't, don't believe it. I mean, you remember 1999, for those of you that are old enough, when the millennial change was going to happen, 2000, we like thought as if he would be that predictable to come on the year 2000 on January 1st. What he says here is be ready and you don't know when. In fact, he says something that's, that's mind-blowing. The angels in heaven don't know, nor the son himself. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So if someone says to you, I know when he's coming back, pay no attention. Obviously, they don't know the word of God. Obviously, they don't trust what Jesus said. Jesus said, only the father knows when that day is going to come. The point here is to be alert, to stay awake. In verse 23, he said, I told you these things beforehand. He warns us because he loves us. Again, he warns us because he loves us. And if you're always ready, you're never surprised. If you're always ready, you're never surprised. It is certain that he will come again. In fact, we say the creed each week with Christians for 15 or more centuries that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We're waiting for Christ's return. We know this is going to happen, and we don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen at any moment. If you look through all of chapter 13, every one of those signs could have already been happening in, in the world. So there's nothing like that we have to wait for one more thing and then potentially. No, he could come today. In fact, every generation of Christian has thought this is the one when Jesus is going to come, which is good because they were trying to be ready. And Jesus says, don't be like the doorkeeper when the owner goes away who comes back and finds the doorkeeper asleep. Now, we don't, we don't have doorkeepers here in the suburbs, but if you live like in an urban apartment building, oftentimes a nice apartment will have a lobby with a glass door that's locked and a security guard or a doorkeeper there. So when you come to the door, they have to buzz you into your own apartment building. And you don't want to come there and have to be banging on the glass to wake up the guy asleep at the chair with his head down on the desk. That's the image here. I mean, it's a modern version of it, but Jesus is saying, don't be asleep when I return. Stay awake. And so the question that I come back to is, do I long for Christ's return? Do I long for it? Do I look with joy for it? It's interesting to me that the early Christians had a a saying that they carried over from the Aramaic into the Greek. And some of you know the word, Maranatha. They didn't translate it from Aramaic to Greek. They just transliterated it. It's, It's the word Maranatha. And it means, our Lord come. And Paul writes it in, at the end of the Corinthians letter, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. He ends his letter by saying, Maranatha, our Lord come. And he starts the letter with the, re- the first reading we had this morning that Ashley read for us, where he is talking to the Corinthians and he's saying some interesting things. He's saying, you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians had all kinds of problems in that church, if you read through the rest of the letter. But because they had trusted in Christ, they were covered by his, his death. He was their savior, and they were guiltless because they were in Christ. Now, they had a ton of work to do in sanctification, a ton. They were, they were a, a challenge for Paul, and that's putting it mildly. But he was clear on the front end, your faith is real, and you will be guiltless in the return. You will be able to, with joy, receive Christ. 
Maranatha, come our Lord. He describes, um, in Mark, uh, Jesus describes after those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. He's describing something to come, but he's also describing what happened in his first coming. If you remember the day of crucifixion, the sky actually literally grew dark from noon until three as he hung on the cross for our sins. And then there was a great earthquake and it split rocks, it opened tombs, it actually even brought some people out of the tombs alive again. It was such a cataclysmic and cosmic event, the death of the Son of God for our sins, that it caused darkness over the whole world. And for those of us who have repented of sin and come to him as our Savior, the darkness of his second coming will not be ours to deal with. He describes it and he says, when he, then he will send out his angels, this is in verse 27, and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of earth to the ends of heaven. The angels will collect up all of the believers and bring them to Christ on that day and great joy and celebration in his glory. But it will be a terrible thought for anyone who doesn't want Christ. He loves us and therefore he warns us. Christians can rejoice at Christ's presence. But see, it's easy for us to grow weary. I mean, just think about the COVID thing. It's been with us for the better part of 2020. And if you've not gotten the virus, are you getting a little bit lax with your mask? Are you getting a little bit lax with social distancing? The longer you go without being caught, so to speak, the more complacent you can become. And the same is true for us spiritually. The longer, it's been 2,000 years, the longer year after year, how many advents have you had in your life? The longer it goes without him coming, the more complacent we can get. And furthermore, we can also get very comfortable. We can start living for the comforts of this life. And where we are in this part of the world, most of us enjoy a lot of comfort. And so it's easy for us to just start to be satisfied, to settle. Advent offers a season of transformation, a chance to return to Christ, to renew our faith, the word Advent literally means arrival or coming toward, Adventus in Latin, and it's a penitential season. It causes us to think, hey, he's coming back. It could be tomorrow. Be ready. Be ready. If you're always ready, you're never surprised. Seven times in here, be on the lookout. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Ask yourself, what transformation would I like the Lord to do in my life this Advent? What must I repent of? What change do I need? Am I in spiritual sleepiness, neglecting my walk with him? You know, relationships can languish very easily through neglect. And you can feel distant from God because you've stopped investing in that relationship. Have I been marveling at temples, meaning man-made structures or things of worldly hope? Look how great this life is. Look how great this thing is. Rather than look how great our God is and come Lord Jesus. Or even avoiding, maybe, the brokenness of humanity. Because if you start looking at people's sickness and suffering and poverty and injustice and all these things, you start to pray with them, come Lord Jesus, because when he comes, he's going to set that stuff right. What cancer patient doesn't want Jesus to come right now, right? Spare me from this suffering. Spare me from this situation. I mean, come Lord Jesus. And if we who are in a, a good place can identify with them, that will make us pray even more. Come, Lord Jesus. Concern for the least of these makes me want Christ's return. 
Now, I want to um, give some specific guidance from the catechism, actually. To be a Christian, the Anglican Church in North America um, released a new catechism um, a year ago. It's excellent. Catechism is just like a question, a series of questions with good answers. And in here, it explores the creed where we say he will, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it says this question. It's question number 78. It'll give us three things to do this Advent. How should you live in anticipation of Jesus's return? And here's the answer. I should anticipate with joy the return of Jesus, my Savior, and be ready to stand before him. His promise to return encourages me to, one, be filled with the Holy Spirit, two, live a holy life, and three, share the hope of new life in Christ with others. So be full of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. It's a command, but it's in the passive form. It doesn't say fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. It says be filled with. It's taking, I think it's borrowing language straight from Ephesians chapter 5. The Holy Spirit is present to us, but we have to receive him as well. So open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Ask him to come into your life. Invite him. Say, Holy Spirit, I want your power. I want your transformation. Come into this Advent season in my life. Ask him. Invite him. And then the pursuit of holiness. Again, asking what would you like to have transformed in your life this year, this Advent it's not hard. Just ask the Lord to show you what's not right in your life, and he will. He'll show something, and then ask him to help you experience holiness in that area of your life. And then finally, share the hope with others. I, I think it's so awesome how Luke's version of this includes a little phrase um, in Luke chapter 21 when Jesus is giving his, his little apocalypse, as it's called. He says this, when you see the Son of Man coming, he says, straighten up, Lift up your heads, for the day of your redemption is drawing near. You don't have to cower in fear or shame. Because of who Christ is and what he's done for you, you can with joy lift up your head, lift up your face, lift up, straighten up, and be excited about it. Because this is a really good thing. It's what you were made for. It will be the completion of that relationship. The consummation is actually how the scholars call it, of that relationship you have with God. It will be of great joy. All things will be made right. This is what we long to see happen. In the meantime, let us always be ready so that we're never surprised. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would give us again that desire for more of you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would help us this Advent. Give us joy, Lord, the kind that overflows the kind that makes us want to share with others, the kind that leads us into worship. I thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Thank you for loving us so well. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. As always, we're going to sing.